Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and... Make your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Our first uh, email comes in today from John. John writes in to live at asknoahshow.com and says, Hi, Noah. Long-time listener, but can't be live due to the airtime. I just listened to the episode about IPv6, and there are some important parts missing about how IPv6 is generated. It is true that the initial spec, basic spec, is to just simply copy the MAC address into the IPv6 host part. But there are already three additional specifications to increase privacy in that matter. The first addition is that you don't just copy the MAC address into the IPv6, but you combine and hash it with the network part and only then use it in IPv6. That way you'll be able to get the same IPv6 every time on the same network. But the host part will be totally different on different networks. And there are some cryptographic parts to make that hard to calculate. Secondly, the spec is just not to use the Mac, but just hash stuff like the install time and the PC startup time and other parts that your IP will stay the same so long as your PC is running. But it will change upon reboot or reinstall. The third would, of course, be to just make it random every time you connect to the network. In Plasma, you can already decide what method you'd like to use. There is a privacy dropdown in the IPv6 tab. You change it to your IP. should be static or random. The best implementation I saw was macOS as they always generate two IPv6 addresses. The first one is a static IPv6 address and should not change. The second one is totally random. And the best part about both IPv6 addresses, they're both active, but Mac will only use the random IPv6 one for outgoing connections, mixing together both worlds, the privacy and the static IP, if you need one. Just wanted to share that with the audience. Cheers, Raphael from Poland. Uh, so, Raphael, I appreciate you writing in. Um, actually, no sooner did we get finished recording that segment or airing that segment, I should say. And if, for those of you that don't know, uh, after the show, we record the show every uh, every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. And, and, and you said that you weren't able to make it because of the live airtime. I'd be interested if you listen to the show on the podcast repeat. Is there a different day or time? Uh, that more of you would be able to make it live. Because as we look into scheduling um, coming up in, in, in the near future, we're reconsidering changing the day. And if we did that, um, you know, I, I'd be interested in knowing what would work better for people. Uh, the biz, busy part of my week uh, has has migrated to, to the, the first part of the week, and that was that scheduling was chose for a variety of other reasons. Anyway, um, on Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, we record the show live. And then after that, uh, some of the people that listen to the show live jump in and we have like, an after show discussion. And no sooner did Steve and I record this episode, release this episode, and we get to the post show and we start talking, and this came up. Uh, and, and people said, Hey, you know, were you were you aware of these privacy RFCs? And neither Steve or I had looked at them. Um, 
in part because, again, this is not a big part of either of our world. So we definitely appreciate you bringing this up and definitely the, we want to get the right information out there. And so thank you very much, Raphael, uh, for, uh, for, for writing in. And uh, I apologize. I think I attributed your, your email to John. John writes in and says, hi, Noah. I'm trying to make a home, take my home lad up a notch. I'm using Portainer right now to manage my containers for when I don't need the command line. And while that's great for getting started with containers, it lacks the volume management and backups. I've been doing that manually for right now using rsync, but I want something more automatic. Should I be using a separate device like a TrueNAS to host the Docker volumes? Also, what kind of container management would you recommend? I think something like Kubernetes, but I'm not sure that fits my basic but specific use case. My major pain point has been the Docker volumes. Thanks, John. So there's a number of different um, solutions out there for managing Docker containers. We actually had a, a, a listener of the show that wrote in, and he had designed his own uh, Docker container management system. Uh, really kind of skilled towards uh, newbies and, and helping getting people off the ground. And so, and that scales all the way up uh, to enterprise level management things. And certainly Kubernetes fits in there. Um, I, I, I would tell you, I would encourage you to go the Kubernetes route. I would encourage you to explore that technology and play with it. Um, yes, it's designed for larger infrastructures. Yes, it's designed um, not necessarily for your home lab, but that's the point of home lab anyway, is to kind of emulate um, the best of the best out there in Linux. And I'll tell you this, you know, when we, for a long time, um, it, there was, there was two sides to Linux and there, there's, there's the desktop side and there's the server side and the server side was somewhat boring um, because it, it just, it ran and it was stable and it was fine and people used it. And, and the desktop side was where all the new bells and whistles and, and where we kind of played, played with stuff. And I would tell you, you know, probably over the last maybe five to seven years, maybe longer than that, that has shifted quite a bit. And today, the advancements that are coming out in container technology and, and Kubernetes and Docker management and all of that stuff has just taken off. It's an, it's an entirely other industry. I remember just probably not three, four, five years ago, I went to a, one of the big Linux cons, Linux Fests. I remember walking in and everything was about containerization. And I think the last year or the year before at Red Hat, Comp, at Red Hat Summit, um, you know, they said, hey, basically virtualization is giving way uh, to containers. So the more that you can learn about container technology, the more you can learn about managing container technology, particularly if you work in the industry, um, certainly valuable to your skill set, certainly valuable from the context of learning. So I would recommend you go that route. Our third email comes in from Matt. Matt writes in and says, hey, Noah, thanks so much for the great advice last time on Linux skills and Red Hat. I'm looking in uh, to it. It's a good start. and I'm glad you shared it with me, but I'm currently at a crossroads in my life as to what I want to pursue in college. I feel like the choices I have are either computer security or technical writing. I have a degree in computer programming already, but programming turned out not to be entirely something I wish to do as a career. So my question is this, between computer security and technical writing, which is usually employed more as a remote working job? and which would be easier for someone who already has experience with programming. They both interest me to some degree. And finally, do you have any experience with technical writing or computer security? Thanks so much for everything you do, Matt. Well, Matt, I would tell you that uh, I don't, I'm not much of a writer. Uh, I'm a speaker. And so my way of communicating information, the way I prefer to communicate information is usually through speaking, obviously through podcasting and, and radio. Um, have a substantial amount of uh, experience with computer security. We do audits for 
businesses, and we help them stay in compliance with all of the various different regulatory agencies. Hospitals have uh, HIPAA compliance. There's, uh, there's, there's, well, there's, a, there's basically a, an organizational body for every industry, and so finance and industry has one, healthcare has one, um, and, and so we do that frequently. Um, as far as working uh, remotely from home, both would work from home, and certainly I think technical writing. I don't know. Uh, I don't know this for a fact, but I, I suspect the vast majority of those jobs, particularly post-pandemic, have probably moved to at-home jobs. So I think you're fine in, in either scenario. I will tell you this. I see a lot more companies asking for security consultants than I see asking for technical writing. Um, it's certainly out there if you uh, if you hone your networking skills and are available and in in, in those circles. I'm sure you'll you'll eventually pick up gigs. But I know some really fantastic technical writers um, that that do it as a side gig. It's not their full time gig. And so I and I don't and again, I don't see run into a lot of clients. And maybe it's just the circles I'm in, but I don't run into a lot of clients that say, hey, do you know anybody that could you know, write up this documentation or uh, deal with X, Y, Z? Um, and so uh, I, I could help you from the security aspect and tell you that um, the vast majority of those kinds of jobs uh require at least a meeting in person that maybe changed a little bit in the pandemic because everybody meets over zoom now, but I, I can't remember the last time we've done a security audit where some form of physical security wasn't necessary. Um, typically you evaluate one of one of three angles. You either evaluate security from purely a technical standpoint. In other words, our passwords in the right place, proper security policy in place, all of that. You evaluate the physical standards. Hey, if I just walk in and say, I'm John from John's Computing, can I get back into the server room back there and somebody buzzes me in? Does that kind of thing work? Or the hybrid approach. I don't care how you penetrate my business. I don't care what you do. I just want to know where the actual gaps are. If you were a real attacker, what would you do? Now, obviously, option C is going to give clients the most accurate representation, the most accurate picture of where the flaws are in their network and their operating security. Unsurprisingly, most places don't want to submit themselves to that. I think that there's a level of embarrassment or concern that comes with it. And the other thing is, I don't think it's very well understood. You hire the security consultant. It should just be as simple as going through logs and checking through passwords. And now they're doing crazy things like dressing up as different people, lying to the front desk, giving them fake names and asking to do stuff that throws people off sometimes. Um, but to me, I, and I try to explain this as best I can, uh, that is what an attacker is going to do. If they want to come into your, your business and they, they check and the oh, firewall is locked up, it's locked up. Okay, great. Let's see if I can just walk back there. And if the answer to that question is yes, it doesn't really matter how much IT security you have. And so if you're doing that from home, certainly, certainly the vast majority of jobs that come in where they say, hey, we want to make, you know, your firewall's out of date and these rules aren't in place and these, uh, th these security practices w would increase. You could do all of that from any computer and an internet connection anywhere in the world. Uh, and so you won't have any trouble with that. I think when you start to move into some of those larger clients that do want to approach security as a holistic model, I think that's where you're going to start to run into trouble doing that stuff remote. But, you know, if you primarily want to work remote and then you say, hey, you know, I've got these clients that on these days we're doing an analysis and so I have to travel for work and so these days I'm going to be on site you can kind of structure it like that, and there's still the majority of your job you'd be able to do from home. Anyway, let me know what you go with. Let me know how that works out. I'd love to know. 
uh, send me another email. Uh, Andy writes in, our fourth email, writes in and says, Hi, Noah. In episode 227, Lucas describes an issue that sounds very similar to a problem I had with a first-gen Ryzen 7. Other than the CPU, it sounds like all our hardware doesn't match up, but this might still work. I changed the power supply idle control setting in the BIOS to typical current idle. It took a little digging to find, but now my system is extremely stable. I found this after a bit of Googling, and then he links to bugzilla.kernel.org. In case you want to verify, I hope this helps. Andy. So, Andy, I appreciate you writing in. I appreciate you uh, providing that to us. We'll have a link for that in the show notes. And so if uh, Lucas wants to take a look at that, and I think we had somebody else that tried to help Lucas out as well, uh, you can take a look at that. We'll have that published in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our pick of the week this week is Portfolio Manage Files on Your Phone. So this comes to us from a, a, a gentleman by the name of Martin Lahai. I think that's how you pronounce it. And uh, he wrote a fascinating blog article of how he came about this and how he started to get excited about phones running Linux, specifically with GNOME. Quote, ever since I met Kakon in Barcelona during last 2019, I was intrigued by this wave of running GNOME on phones. It took several months until I could get my teeth into it, though, between my Sugar Applications project, Flat Seal, and a new job, mostly due to how hard it is to get a proper Linux-capable phone in Paraguay. I had no time or choice, really. And then he goes on to say that once he did finally get his hands on a on a phone, it was a refurbished Moto G4 with Postmarket OS, he says, to his surprise, one of the biggest missing pieces was the file manager. I tried all of the options that fell into the selection criteria, but none really provided a good experience for me. The major issue I found is that the available options seem to land on a designed for the desktop, but will fit on a small screen with a few improvements in the UI category. Since then, I started to think about how a simple file manager for phones would look like. And by simple, I mean two things. First, it provides 90% of the things that people need to manage files on their phone. And second, a UI or UX that is specifically crafted for phones with small touchscreens. A couple of weeks ago, I finally got the weekend slots I needed to hack on these ideas, and now I'm ready to introduce Portfolio, a minimal file manager for those who want to use Linux on mobile devices. This was the best description I could come up with, and it's funny because it's true. Portfolio is my, is my first application that is 100% designed for mobile devices and supports the most simple yet common tasks like file browsing, opening, moving, copying, deleting, and renaming files. A whole weekend went into just getting the interaction right, but I believe it's paid off. The UI is clean, the relevant actions are always visible, and it's just one tap away. The application assumes that it's running on a resource-limited device and therefore sacrifices some speed for improvement responsiveness. As seen above, it even provides an about dialogue fit for small screens. So, I will have portfolio linked for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. I am continually impressed and intrigued by the concept of, of Linux running on mobile phones. I would have never thought in a million years uh, when Canonical started down the road of releasing Ubuntu to phones and others have since followed. I, I it, it took me a long time to, to really wrap my head around why that would be a useful idea or had any real chance of succeeding. Because when you look at how many applications are available on just Google or just iOS alone, uh, it's 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 staggering. But in the past year or so, as I've had an opportunity to play with things like Postmarket OS, and as I've had an opportunity specifically to play with things like the Pine Phone and, and the, the Pine Tab and the Pine Book, 
it's become very clear to me that the, uh, it, an overall pattern seems to be true. And that pattern is oftentimes proprietary does lead the way uh, with innovation. And they go through and they come out with an idea and then they push it and then everybody adopts it and and it and it's considered good. And then comes along, Linux behind says, hey, we could play in that space too. But what you find continually over and over again with open source is when they go to attack a problem, the end result is typically better than the result that you'd get with proprietary software. And so I, th there was so many times I would, I, would, I would sit down to use an I iOS device and I would find that there wasn't a calculator app built into, you know, like the iPad, for example. And it always confused me, like such a simple utility that's been on every device since the, the Palm Pilots uh, and, and not included in, in a mobile operating system. And there's really nothing you can do about that. And so uh, same thing is true when I go to look for a file manager. You go to look for it, it just doesn't exist. And every operating system has their reason to why they either do or don't include something like that. And modern version of Android obviously have come around and, and start to include those utilities. And there's a lot of third-party ones available. But when you get a native file manager that can actually talk to the disk and view the files and it starts to feel like I have administrative control over the device and now my phone starts to just feel like what it is, a very small computer with a different style interface, now I feel like we're really trudging ahead uh, with proper mobile. I don't care if it supports all of the apps and all of the app infrastructure and all of the things that you're going to need. I've kind of accepted for the most part that if I'm going to exist in a 2021 world, I'm going to have to carry either an iOS phone or an Android phone. I am appreciative of the fact that we have things like Lineage OS so that we can emulate running those required Android programs. And so when I come across a situation where I have to have a phone to do a thing or I have to have an app to do a thing, and that's becoming more and more recently, uh, I'm I'm covered there, and the open source world has an answer to that. But when I want to purchase a device that I'm going to live off of, a mobile device that I'm going to I'm going to put a lot of data on, I'm going to have it for a long time, I'm going to carry it with me everywhere, and I'm going to use it frequently. When, when I look when I look at that kind of requirements, I don't think iOS or, or Android fits me there. I just don't. I, I don't trust either of those platforms enough to put a significant, a holistic amount of data on it. And and then the other side of that is even if I even if I did even if I was comfortable with it I'm constantly being bombarded with evidence that it's not a secure platform and so it's fine for day to day stuff but if you have any serious business you probably don't want to do that on mobile devices and indeed that seems to be mirrored by industry uh, and so when I look at projects like Portfolio and I look at the speed and 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 class at which Linux on mobile devices is moving forward. It's really hard to be anything but super excited. And so, uh, you know, I would invite you to check out Portfolio. I definitely invite you to check out Postmarket OS. If you don't have a, uh, a Pine phone, there are a number of different hardware platforms that are supported uh, under a lot of these mobile operating systems. That's, again, that's kind of one of the exciting things. I've, what I found is I can try things out on the Pine phone and, and rapidly iterate between different distros or different implementations and then find what I like and then take that over to something like Sony open devices or even I hate to say it but the Google Pixel line has phenomenal support for loading uh, alternative ROMs not anything I don't know that that's anything necessarily that Google did but a lot of these alternative operating systems support the Google Pixel line and some like um, I, I, I can't think of the name of the, the new version of Copperhead OS it's not Copperhead OS anymore that one only works on the Pixel line so the webs or the uh, 
The application is Portfolio. You can learn more at blog.gnome.org, and we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. In the news this week, we start out with Matrix. Now, we haven't talked about Matrix in a little while, but they have a new uh, development, and that is Matrix Spaces. Now, Spaces is the replacement for Matrix Communities. And if you played with Matrix Communities and you were disappointed, then that's understandable because what they, they, they rolled out communities, they got some feedback, and what they understood pretty quickly was people want more. And this is going to circle back to that, that same idea I iterated earlier of when open source does it, they usually wind up with something better. So the matrix team has the, the the hindsight ability to look at the way that teams and slack and discord and all of the places have done um spaces and community or grouping however it is you want to 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 put it and what they came out with is there are essentially three different reasons you would want to group rooms together the first might be because you want a space to explore you want a place that hey when I join the Ask Noah community, for example, I want to see what other rooms are encompassed in that umbrella. And so for that, you might have something like public spaces where they collect uh, groups of rooms that they, it's, they're designed to explore. You also may have private spaces. And so an example of a private space would be something like we use uh, Matrix professionally over at Speed Technologies. And so uh, we have a professional instance that, that is run and managed uh, for us by the EMS team. And in that scenario, it's the exact same process as you might experience when you go to work at a company and you get assigned a Microsoft Teams login or Slack login or whatever. Um, the, 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 the new employee signs in and then there's a collection of rooms that we want that employee to be in. And then certainly we add them uh, to a couple of one offs. And so in a private space, obviously, we don't want just anyone from the public being able to come into our internal rooms. But once we've hired somebody, we also don't want to have to go through and, well, we got to have them in this room and the general channel and the and the, you know, all of that. We, we don't want to do that. You just want to invite the user one time into the space and then have them populate into all of the rooms. And so that's where private spaces come in. And then they did uh, what they're calling personal spaces. And this is something that I thought was really interesting because I, I've not really seen this on other platforms. And the idea of personal spaces are, at the end of the day, all spaces, communities, whatever you want to call them, I think on Discord they call them servers, which is even more confusing because it's not a server. But uh, the whole idea is that you can group different collections of rooms together for different reasons. And one of the reasons that somebody might want to group a collection of rooms is for personal organization. And so maybe I have a, 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 a collection of rooms for all my family members. Well, I wouldn't necessarily want that space to be exposed because maybe some of the people that are in my family are not in your family. And so it wouldn't make any sense to you. Maybe I don't want you to know that you're in a group called family versus a, 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 <laughs> a group called extended family or whatever. Right. And so that's where the idea of personal spaces come in where you can configure and collect or organize rooms however you want. And one of the things I've thought, it's, it's, it's interesting. I'm just going to read this uh, verbatim. While researching spaces, we discovered that people feel constrained by the limitation of most popular platforms today. For example, the structure which makes sense to an admin or moderator or manager might differ from the best or most productive view of the same set of conversations. This led us to personal spaces which will replace Element's old custom tags Easter egg. 
Similarly, we found people that are constrained by a single column, a flat list of conversations which lacks the flexibility needed to organize information with any relative sense or importance, value or area. And to that end, the same way spaces contain rooms, they also contain other spaces. In other words, nested spaces, right? This allows you to build whatever hierarchy of information you want it to be, as flexible and as organized as files and folders. Using spaces and subspaces to build hierarchies effectively turns Matrix into a global, decentral file system for conversations and other real-time data. There are a few rough edges into them today, but we are shipping now to get feedback sooner. More on that below. So what I want to point out here, I, I continually talk about Matrix, and every once in a while I'll bump into somebody and they'll be like, hey, I gave it a shot, but it it's just, it's not good right now. You know, th this happened, or this was laggy, or, or this was problematic, or I couldn't figure out how to get that to work, and all of that is probably true. But I will tell you something, as a person who spends the vast majority of his life communicating in an online connected way, I have yet to come across a tool that even is, that, that can even remotely do what matrix is capable of. I mean, there's not even a close second alternative. Yes. If you agree to get everybody on one platform, then I could, then, then there are, then there's room for conversation. We can talk about discord. We can talk about Slack. We can talk about, but until those applications are capable of the wide ranging connection me mechanisms and bridging capabilities that matrix has, they're not even in the same realm, let alone the same discussion. I work with organizations that we are on X platform and we only work on X platform and I have to communicate with those people. And then we've got our internal team at AltaSpeech, which they'll use whatever I decide because it's my company. And and then we have the community side um, of Asno and the chat room and all of those kinds of things. And so when I sit down in the studio to come do a show, uh, I, I want to be able to interact with you in the chat room and I want to keep an eye on that throughout the week so I can have those conversations or you know, people that are in the community can ping me and say, hey, you know, this needs attention or that needs attention or we need to do this correction or whatever. Right. And so coming in and, and sitting here with the community aspect, I think element slash matrix probably functions on par or better than IRC or any other chat technology that we could use. And with our our latest implementation of being able to actually embed uh, ParachuteLive.tv, embed the chat right alongside just like you would for Twitch or YouTube or whatever else, except this time it's a matrix room, which means I have one read, one client installed on my laptop, and I exist in all of those rooms. And when it comes time to do a show or interact with that portion of of, of community and society, it's, it's easy for me to do that. I drop into that room and I'm good to go. When I go back to work the next day, I have a collection of work rooms that I want to be monitoring. And obviously, the community rooms are, are going down to second priority. And then at night when I'm at home with my family, all of that stuff I want to fall away. And there's a, a few select people or a few select rooms that we monitor for emergencies and stuff like that. For the most part, any, any other work stuff I'll get to the next day. I don't know of any communication software that is customizable enough to let me do that. Now, today, the way that I'm accomplishing that is different accounts. And so I have a work account, I have a community account, I have a personal account. And the work account is in all of the workrooms and some of the community ones, if there's anything that really demands my attention during workday. The personal account has the most essential people and nothing else. And the community account is just kind of open to all. Anybody can send me a message, kernel Linux, colon Linux Delta dot com. And, 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 and that kind of flexibility, but again, one application interface. And there are some people that say, well, 
how do you use multiple accounts? The way that I'm doing that is on the command line, element dash, uh, dash desktop, and then tac tac profile, and then specify a profile name. And element is smart enough that every time you spin up a different quote unquote profile, it will start a new element instance and you can log in with a different username and password. It makes it seamless to be able to switch between accounts. Now, multi-account is coming down the road, but honestly, spaces to a larger degree fixes this for me, right? Because the idea here is that you can organize rooms into categories and you can assign permissions and all those things uh, based on a collection of rooms. Because of the hierarchical state of those rooms, it means I can have Ask Noah Community or Linux Delta and below that, Ask Noah in all of the rooms and so on and so forth, and then collapse all of those down and go back into work mode and open up that set of rooms. And I get to decide how those communication things are organized. And, and, and then you combine that with the intense ability to customize notifications of Matrix. And so these place, these rooms, I get alerts on every message that comes into the room. Those rooms, I only get I only get notifications when somebody's actively pinging me, responding to one of my messages, that kind of thing. And these rooms over here, I don't get any push notifications. It's simply all jump in and catch up when I have time. And, and again, there's very few pieces of communication software. They're, they're all, some of them have some of those features. None of them have all of those features. And I was talking with a, with a client the other day who they have switched over to Element at our suggestion, and uh, they were asking for some features. And I said, well, let's look. Let's, let's look at the public roadmap. And I pulled up the public roadmap and, and put it up in front of the client. They looked at it and said, oh, there's the feature I was looking for. Well, that's interesting. They're going to work on that next. And they said, do all companies do this? Do all companies tell you what features, like what features people have requested and where that fits in their larger plan of getting to? And I said, no, no, open source does that. No other, no other software mechanism does that because, you know, they'll let you know when there's a feature, when they want to push a feature. And if you're Slack and you've reached out to them on Twitter and said, hey, there's no way to mute individual users. So if you have people that you have to have on your Slack instance for one reason or another, but you want those people and you've asked those people to only post in these rooms and they continue to send you direct messages, you know, what's my moderation ability here? What can I do? And their answer back to you is, yeah, we're just not going to address that. We don't care. Uh, that puts you in a really bad position as a business. And that just doesn't happen with Matrix. The flexibility is virtually endless. And so uh, I have been playing with this. It, it is, it's, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. We're, 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 we're getting there. But Spaces is a massive improvement, massive improvement from communities and a massive improvement from virtually anything similar in other, uh, on other platforms or, or other alternative communication systems. And so some of the things that they're coming up down the pipe, uh, auto-joining rooms when joining a space. And so, for example, like I say, you join AltaSpeed Technologies, and by default, you're already added to these six, seven rooms, whatever. Uh, user permissions, which cascade from spaces to rooms. So this is a big deal, right? If you have, we had a collection of community rooms, one for different topics, and we needed to administrate those and moderate those, we can set those permissions one time at the space level and then have that trickle down to the individual rooms. Mature space, uh, subspaces and space hierarchy. So that's, again, going back to that global file system they're referencing. And so you can treat rooms almost like files. Uh, improving onboarding into spaces and then space bridges. A couple of other things that weren't explicitly spelled out in the blog post over at matrix.org, um, but I read through a little bit of the development chatter on on GitHub, and uh, it, it's interesting that this this idea of a folder hierarchy um, it goes a lot further than spaces. This is certainly the, probably the most direct way to exemplify that, and I think that's why that has why that example is being used. But 
Um, the idea is that everything can be a room or will be a room in Matrix. And so when they start looking at getting to threading, uh, message threading, that's all going to be based on different rooms. And they're going to use rooms to implement that. And so when you when you conform to a very basic standard that is so extensible, uh, it allows you to fundamentally do things with this piece of software you're just never going to be able to do in other pieces of software. Now, is it going to take longer to get there? Yes. Will it take longer to perfect all of it? Yes. Have these other companies like Slack and Mattermost and, and Discord and all the places, have, have they ha do they have six, seven, eight years of development lead time? Yes. But again... When you sit down to use uh, Matrix and you look at the features that are there and you kind of look at, at if you look at it uh, almost as, as of a skeleton of, of what can be, uh, again, I don't think you're going to find anything even close to the capability uh, of this software. And so I, I am over the moon that Spaces has launched. I'm even more excited that it's, in, it's going to be here or is here in time for Southeast Linux Fest, which is ticking down just a couple of weeks away. Uh, we're going to try to use Matrix to do all of the hosting there. We've purchased a new server to upgrade Linux Delta, so we have more space and, and more capability. Uh, and so this, the timing of this just could not be better. A huge thanks uh, to the Matrix team for what they did. You can learn more uh, by going to podcast.snowashow.com. We'll have all the links and resources for you in the show notes, including the blog post and where they announce it, uh, and you can read more details there. Video editing on Chromebooks uh, just got easier. Quote, now that Tiger Lake Chromebooks are a thing, I had very high hopes that DaVinci Resolve would actually run on Chrome OS thanks to the highly anticipated Irix Iris XE graphics. I'm sad to report, though, that as of right now, that is not the case. I attempted to run DaVinci Resolve on a Tiger Lake Core i5, and it still fails to recognize the new integrated GPU and just won't run. That leaves us with options like Flowblade, Caden Live, and others. These happen to run on Chrome if you know how to install them, but one particular developer group has finally thrown their hat in the ring and offering an official installation method for Chromebooks. That software? OpenShot. OpenShot is a powerful video editor that is free and open source. It's available for Windows, Mac OS, and Linux. The Linux version is packaged as an app image, which makes it compatible with most Linux distributions. It is for this reason that it is easily installed and runs on Chrome OS via the Linux container. As I was looking around for any updates, the most common video editors, I discovered that OpenShot has packaged its app image with an installer that's designed specifically for Chrome OS, and that's very exciting news. Not only does OpenShot offer us professional-grade editing, but it also integrates with Blender, Inkscape, and graphics creation. Now, for the most part, I imagine that people who are interested in uh, editing video have figured it out, and anybody who's using a Chromebook has figured out how to either boot Linux on if that's what you designed to do or you found another way or you just gave up on it. Um, so I, I am excited that that video editing has come to Chrome OS, but there is a larger picture that that spoke to me uh, as I as I was going through this story. You know, my kids uh, attend public school and as part of their attendance in public school, they're issued a Chromebook. And so they take it home. They're issued it at the beginning of the year. They take it home and they're encouraged to utilize the resources that are available on that Chromebook even when they're at home. And so they have subscriptions to various different services that they use for their education during the day. And some of them are compelling enough to draw them into those services after hours, after school hours. They come home and they're still playing with that. And as I kind of as I've watched that kind of evolve, what has become clear to me is 
when Google subsidizes the cost to get the hardware of Chromebooks into schools, it sets up a new standard and a new set of expectations because my kids are extra, at, at, at 10 and under are more skilled and more versed and more comfortable using Google Docs, Sheets, Google Calendar, uh, emailing their teachers. I couldn't believe it the first time my seven-year-old said that she emails her teacher and they, they go back and forth. I'm like, my gosh, you know, uh, it, but, but they are, they are, they are, they are being trained with the exact same tools and the exact same workflow of the professionals that we supported Alta Speed Technologies uh, from a professional level. And they're, they're beginning at the very beginning stages of understanding how to use those tools and resources. And so as I watch what the larger ramifications of that are, my kids are going to have absolutely no idea how to use Microsoft Office. I mean, that's a foreign tool to them. But G Suite's going to come supernatural to them because if they can get into Chrome, they can do their thing. So right now, that exists on a Chromebook. What's exciting to me about things like OpenShot being available natively for the Chromebook and having an official installation method means that when my son or when my daughter or when some other kid says to themselves, hey, I want to get into video editing, what video editor is out there? It turns out video editing hasn't been a priority for Google. And someday I'm sure they're going to get there inside of a web-based thing or they'll have a, a full-on tool that Google will write seven times, discontinue seven times and make eight. But at some point they'll probably get there. They're not there yet because the underlying operating system is uh, is Linux, Gentoo, and because the underlying operating system is for the most part not entirely locked down, it allows open source developers to say, hey, you have decent hardware over there. And yeah, Google subsidized the cost of, of, of creating that hardware to put it in the hands of those people. But now that the hardware is in the hands of those people and we have a Linux kernel, look what we can do. And that, again, that kind of connection just doesn't exist outside of the open source world. And so as I see what's what's possible and what's capable, it's going to cause, I believe, it's going to cause the kids and users of those systems to begin to explore. And so when we reset the paradigm and we say, OK, we're starting over as Chromebooks this is the kind of standard and you can do these things. You can't do those things. And that's the expectation. Nobody tries to install Adobe Premiere on a Chromebook. Adobe isn't trying to port Adobe Premiere to the Chromebook. Nobody's trying to port. Uh, nobody's talking about or asking uh, when they're going to switch over to Final Cut Pro because nobody is talking about that. It just isn't a thing. And to a certain degree, what it's done is it's reset the expectation of users, which is something that I personally have been trying to do for 15 years, right? I walk into a business. What do you do with that computer? Well, I open up a web browser and I click on these links here and I use this web-based service. You don't need Windows for that. Really? Yeah, really. You don't need Windows for that. It turns out you won't have to do that. Um, but there is this expectation. I run a business. I use Windows. I, 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 I'm in graphic design. I use Mac. There's the, the, the preconceived conceptions of what somebody has to do to get a task done. And what Chrome, what Google has done is reset those expectations. What OpenShot has done is raised, is, is come above those expectations. And so the tasks that can be performed are are well above what you could expect from a Chromebook. And the great thing about that is when a user comes off of a, a $3,900 MacBook or, or Mac Pro and they're using Final Cut Pro, there's a certain level of expectation on, on what they're going to be able to do and where the layout and where all the buttons are and all of those things. And I think sometimes that clouds people's uh, ability to to interpret what they can do versus the way they like to do something. And I see that all the time. 
when when you start looking at a kid who maybe grew up and didn't have access to any sort of video editor and all of a sudden OpenShot is the thing that's available on the Chromebook, can you imagine what their expectations and and and, and what the reaction is when they fire that thing up on a latest uh, latest gen i7 with dedicated graphics? And by the way, that whole machine cost them less than 800 bucks. All of a sudden, the software that they got for free that they were able to try out on their Chromebook at school in first grade, all of a sudden, now they're editing a video for their company or for their personal YouTube channel or whatever it is, and they're doing that on the same software, but just on a more robust machine. Or maybe they step up to Caden Live or Caden Live starts porting out to these places. All of those video editors, which, you know, five years ago, seven years ago, would have been, oh, that's the thing on Linux that nobody uses. Not anymore, it isn't. Now it's the thing that's used by every major public school. They are all running on Linux systems, and they've reset those expectations. So congratulations to the OpenShot team for getting your name out there. Uh, I think that's going to have a great impact on Linux in the long run. Well, Rocky Linux is back in the news. Back in December of 2020, Red Hat announced that it was no longer going to be supporting CentOS 8 as of January 1st, 2022. And, of course, that's a big deal for people in the high-performance computing and the larger computing industry and basically anyone that runs Red Hat servers because Red Hat uh, – but Red Hat had a plan for this. And so Red Hat announced that they were going to be continuing with what they're calling CentOS Stream, um, and they're calling the upstream brand of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And, of course, we've talked about that on the show. Um, but that this new version of CentOS doesn't operate on the traditional release schedule. Um, instead, it uses a rolling release style, which limits the uh, amount of, of places that you might want to put something like this in production. And further, they shifted uh, from a downstream bug-for-bug compatible version of Red Hat to an upstream experimental distro. And I, I, I somewhat struggle with that phraseology because I, I don't think Red Hat would describe it as a upstream experimental distro. It's one point release earlier. I mean, one point, oh, excuse me, one point release later. So uh, how experimentals, I kind of question that. But basically it means that the free version of RHEL is, is, is not as refined as RHEL proper. Um, I will tell you, and, and so the announcement comes that uh, that Gregory Kutzer has announced Rocky Linux, a new community-driven alternative to CentOS, and the first release of Rocky Linux is now available. So you can find more details at podcast.asnoahshow.com. We'll have the link, uh, the resources listed for you there if you'd like to download it. Um, I will tell you, having gone through this myself now, I was not upset or surprised at Red Hat's decision. I was a little... I don't know, displeased with the how fast they wanted to, to, to move. Once you tell a client that uh, a thing is going to be good for a certain amount of years, I should never have to change that. And if I do have to change that and go back on my word, and that comes because of a software manufacturer's decision, then I place that blame squarely on that software manufacturer. But that's it. I, I understand that they own that code and they pay to develop it. And so whatever model works best for them, I'm happy to support. And so to that end, we have started rolling out CentOS Stream. And we've done that now three times for three major clients uh, for virtualization infrastructure and no problems whatsoever. And I said day one, and I'll continue to say this, Red Hat's success or failure with CentOS Stream will depend on their ability to make CentOS Stream a successful product despite the fact that it trails ahead of the of Red Hat proper by one point release. And if they're successful in doing that, if they're able to produce a product that gives you all of the things that you need for the same price point 
uh, or or less price point, uh, people are going to be fine with it. And people like me are going to have no trouble uh, starting on CentOS stream and then migrating people to a proper RHEL subscription uh, when those when those companies want to get there, when they need that support or when they need that um, that backing. Uh, and so I and, and so far, it's been absolutely problem free. Now, are we going to roll out Rocky Linux? Yes, we probably will. Um, I like the idea that it is an independent operating system. I like the fact that it is primarily community driven, although I will be the first to say that it's community driven with a lot of backing uh, from Control IQ and um, and from the HPC space. And so, you know, there is a there is a vested interest. There is a there is a plan there. Um, but I like the idea that somebody from the community is taking open source and recompiling it and releasing it under a different name. It's the very essence of it's it's proof. It's proof of of some of the advantages that we talk about in open source. If open source is really all it's cracked up to be, if it really is the thing that anybody can take and anybody can use, then it stands to reason that when you have a really expensive open source product that other people are interested in using, that somebody would take that open source product legally because you can and recompile it and strip out all the trademark stuff and then ship it off. That should be a thing. And I'm glad that it is. And and a huge congratulations to Gregory for making that happen. Well, KDE 522 beta is out. Uh, A number of different improvements uh, on this. Ocular now correctly renders embedded PNG files in .cbz comic book files. Uh, Gwenview now uses a standard QT-provided graphics component for its image view. In the Plasma Wayland session, the Plasma browser integration app no longer crashes uh, in a loop when Firefox asks whether or not it can be your default browser. The Plasma Wayland session, KWIN no longer sometimes crashes when an external displays go to sleep or is disconnected. I've been bitten by that a few times. Uh, when using the System D startup feature, you can now unlock your session using the control line login CTL utility. Uh, in Plasma Wayland session, dragging and dropping into the task manager tasks to the pager applet to move them to different virtual desktops now works. Dolphin has adopted the K hamburger menu, which has allowed us to tweak the contents of the hamburger menu to be vastly more relevant, less redundant, less intimidating, and less likely to overflow on small screens. All of the features are still there. They're simply just reorganized so that the common ones are easier to access and the uncommon ones are no longer so much in your face, so to speak. You now have the uh, the option of disabling the open terminal item in Dolphin's context menu, uh, which I'm not sure why you'd want to do that. I use that all the time, but I suppose if you never are in the terminal and you inadvertently click on it, that's a nice thing to be be disabled. A nice thing to be able to disable. Uh, the translucency desktop effect is now disabled by default, so Windows no longer becomes slightly translucent when moved to reside. Man, that's a big one for me. I have had numerous. I have to make sure to shut that off on my work laptop. There'll be oftentimes I'll have sensitive client data up behind. And I'll go to check an email or something in front of somebody. I'll move the window, and I've noticed that you can see through a little bit. And I, you know, I have to shut that off. Uh, and finally, the system trays Bluetooth applet has been revised. They now have an "Add New Device" button that lives in the header, so it becomes consistent with other system tray applets. I stand uh, by what I've said a few different times that um, KDE is one of the most approachable, refined desktops out there. I have been running KDE now for since 2017, and I can count on two two hands the amount of times I've had to restart my computer because of a problem with it. I mean, it's just it's been absolutely flawless. And real fan of KDE, and glad to see that 5.22 beta has been released. 
Uh, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but there, well, there was an article uh, that came to us from the Register about open source versus proprietary license. And essentially, it, the article is written from uh, a talk that Percona's CEO uh, gave, taking a swipe at open source software vendors switching to proprietary or less permissive open source licenses in an, in an attempt to avoid um, being overrun by a lot of these cloud places. Uh, Peter Zatev said open source companies are coming under increasing pressure from their brands to bring more software under a closed source license or something that could be close to it as they seek to compete with cloud vendors to take freely available open source software and redistribute it as paid for managed services. Speaking at Percona Live this week, Zayasaf, uh, who also co-founded the software consultancy biz, said the heads up that the promise of cloud computing has underdelivered for open source database developers, folking, folk, forcing them to reexamine their business models. The future data set lies in the open source model, but is it was the only way to ensure that the code is widely distributed. Many of the open source software products were taken by cloud vendors, integrated into their cloud platform, extended and offered in their proprietary fully managed services, he said, and that, of course, redirects a lot of the revenue stream from open source developers in the cloud vendor. Open source has one, he says, but it's much more simple and more practical way to deploy your database. And it helps to reduce the toil and maximize automation. It really empowers developers to build better apps faster. And that is what a lot of companies are all about these days. So we'll continue to watch. Uh, I, I, obviously, I don't have, uh, I don't keep a close finger on the, on the database world, but it, it, I have seen, I've seen in, I've seen that happen in where a company comes out or, or a, a, a good open source project comes out and the open source project doesn't necessarily get a lot of credit. As soon as an organization picks it up and starts pushing it, all of a sudden that organization gets a lot of the credit or at least we all we all benefit from uh, from the results. And so I remember it was sitting next to Richard Hip uh, at Southeast Linux Fest a few years back. And, you know, he's, he was talking about his project, his project. I said, oh, what? And he says, oh, it's SQL Lite. I almost fell off my chair. Like, here's the guy that wrote the database thing. That if you have an Android phone, if you have a phone in your pocket, chances are you're running his software. Open source piece of software. Fantastic, very widely used piece of software. And nobody really talks about Richard Hip, and nobody really talks about SQL Lite. Everybody just talks about the major brands and the major things that, that run off of his software. So I can only imagine how much that happens in the cloud world and where, hey, we need, you know, we need a, 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 a database that scales and we need storage that scales and we need this that scales. And guess what? Open source has answers for all of those things uh, if you're willing to if you're willing to go that route. Uh, it's just it. It, but you, what is the what is the motivation to give back to those projects? And if there isn't motivation to give back to those projects, then there isn't a revenue. When you're making money off of providing those services, that money doesn't get back to the developers. And so I think to a certain degree, the answer there just in a, in a, in a large picture is open source projects. When they when they launch, they have to make a decision that they're going to have to be available not only just for uh not only are they just going to have to be available, the source code is going to have to be available, but they're going to have to offer a way that you can have software as a service because I think a lot of organizations expect that in today's day and age. And so um, if, if, if you can, if, if when you launch something like NextCloud and you can offer the ability to try NextCloud as a paid service, and same goes for PyWego, um, 
C-File, all of those companies are doing this, right? They have the code base. You can run it yourself. You can host it yourself. If you want to, you just sign up for a service and use it. And that's exactly what we're doing with Element and EMS. Uh, They host it for us. They pay for it. We have a professional version. And then we also host it on our own on the community side. And I think that's going to be the future of open source software. Hey, we record this show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Join us at asknoahshow.com. The music means I'm out of time. We'll see you next week. Asknoahshow.com. Asknoahshow.com.